And we beheld his glory. Studies in John's Gospel. This is part four. The title this morning is Knowing, Receiving, Believing, Becoming. Those are the four verbs that I want to attach. I think they grow out of this text. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. John, speaking of Christ, he was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, he says it twice, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're a little bit longer in this first chapter probably than we will be with any other in John's Gospel, so don't panic. And I've been amazed going over it again at how carefully crafted these opening paragraphs in our English translations, how carefully written they are. John isn't just flinging out ideas about Jesus at random. This is good writing. He writes in a way that really ought not to be just rushed over or lightly considered. And so that means we have to do a little digging, thinking a little deeper and a little harder these Sunday mornings when we're in this great text. Verses 10 and 11 are what I would call the dark verses. And John constructs these verses in such a way that if only we didn't already know them so well, we'd probably be more shocked that this word made flesh was rejected so roundly, so completely by the very people he came in love to redeem. Makes no sense. Here's why I think it's important to recognize it and think about it. Here's why this matters, this rejection of Christ by his own. Christians, especially newer Christians, can frequently feel just a little bit threatened and maybe even a bit intimidated by the rejection of the Christ they treasure so deeply. So their allegiance to him, when he is so roundly mocked by the surrounding culture, their allegiance to him can look a little bit illogical. I mean, how can their faith be precious when none of their closest companions value it at all? What what am I doing wrong? John points out carefully, repeatedly, this is all predictive. This is not something to be shocked at in your experience. And then verses 12 and 13 bring the 
victorious message of hope that in spite of the darkness, Jesus Christ still gives life. We're immediately brought back and reminded of the truth we already studied at the end of verse 5, those great words, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. You might think so, but it hasn't. It's not done yet. The king is coming. There's a kingdom coming. Let's pull some thoughts out of these verses. Point number one. The rejection of Christ by the world doesn't stem from any lack of credibility on his part, but merely proves the biblical doctrine of the fall and human sin. So so in other words, what we read in these verses from John demonstrates the effects of what we read in Genesis chapter 3 about the fall. He was in the world. The world was, here it is, this is creation. This is Genesis. He was in the world. The world was made through him. And yet, the world did not know him. So John has a John has a way of making a profound point by the repetition of simple words and phrases. He does it a lot. In this verse, there's only 19 words in that verse, and he repeats world three times. Two one way and then the third a different way. This is John's way of signaling his desire that we reading these words centuries later, we'll notice that. We'll fix our attention on it. He tells us three things about the world. First, he says that the light, God the Son, was present in the world. Then he tells us, secondly, that the light, God the Son, was the creator, the originator of the world. And then thirdly, he tells us that the light... God the Son was rejected by the world. And that rejection is heightened by the way John leads up to it. John's point is this very world, this world in which the word was, even in the sense of Colossians, upholding all things by the word of his power. Or, that he was the creator and originator of it in the first place. And then this rejection is heightened. This world, the one he made, think about it, the one who made the world and every human being in it, One who, moment by moment, you're sitting here right now, you're not thinking about it, but your lungs are going in and out, in and out. Your heart. You ever think about what keeps that thing going? It's not plugged in anywhere, you know. Right? Why is that beating right now? And the Bible says, well, he he, he upholds all things by the word of his power. So he made this world. He made it. It is his He owns it, and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the psalmist says. 
It's his. He made it. He owns it. He has absolute rights over it. It wouldn't last a minute without him. That world, John says, rejects him. Has no use for him. You notice the way that term world, it slightly morphs as he uses it. The first two times it refers kind of to this created world, this world. But the third time, John narrows it down. The world did not know him, and it's mankind in particular. Not just the planet, but the people on the planet. He came to his own. They, they had nothing to do with him. So John's point is, there is no logical excuse for this rejection of the word made flesh. In fact, John's merely saying the incarnation proves what Paul said about all previous revelations of God's presence and power and love. You know these words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, this is what they do, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, these are the ones that reject him. They're without excuse. He's saying what John's saying. Only Paul, John will say it like this. Paul always says it like this. That's just, that's Paul. My point is this. I don't know how long you've been following Jesus. I want you to know with all your heart, there is nothing undesirable about Christ. It's not that he failed to meet our deepest need. He knows what we need because, John says, he designed us, created us. He has first rights over everything about us. And I word it that way because if you're going to be a pursuer of social justice and you want to care passionately about diligently standing up for the rights of those who are overlooked, you should start your search for social justice by being particularly protective of the rights of the one who created everyone and everything, who made it all, owns it all, sustains it all, and this world spits in his face. Go for the justice of God. Care about all injustice, especially injustice against our Creator God. Think about it. It's not that He didn't come into this world in love, it's not as though He was an imposter just pretending to be the way, the truth, and the life. Nope. No. Mankind's failure to honor God the Son when he came all the way down to us in human flesh. It doesn't reflect any defect in him. It exposes the sin in us. That's the next topic John's going to go into. Point number two. The ignorance John mentions in verse 10 is a guilty ignorance, not a morally neutral ignorance. So in other words... Those who rejected Jesus weren't ignorant about him 
in the way that I'm ignorant about how to remove somebody's appendix. It's not that. Look at the way John strings together his argument. 10 and 11. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him there. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So, so did not know him. I showed it to you. It's further refined in that verse as did not receive him. And the world is further defined as his own and his own people. He says it twice. And the reason I'm laboring that a bit, it matters to John that the world who did not know the word made flesh should have known him because the immediate context of his coming was to his own people, right there, his own people. The Jewish inheritors of the old covenant. And when they wouldn't receive him, it tells us something important about the kind of ignorance John is talking about when he says the world didn't know him in verse 10. That's because many of those to whom Jesus came, they had centuries of revelation about his coming. The whole Bible spells that out. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago at, see that? Many times and in many ways, not just one or two. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Here it is again, through whom also he created the world. God had spoken less directly to his chosen people. It says that many times and in many ways by the prophets. And Jesus, I mean, I don't want to labor it. Jesus talked about those prophets. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about who? About me. All those prophets who were speaking to you, they were telling you about me. I came unto my own people. They have nothing to do with me. Do you, see, do you see the kind of ignorance he's talking about? It's blamable ignorance. He means they turned away from him. He means they wouldn't receive him. They wouldn't respond. He means they rejected him. Why did they do this? Why? It makes no sense. Later on, John will spell out clearly a concept that he just introduces here. Why did they do this? Well, this is the judgment. Here's the verdict. The light. We know now that's Jesus. That's what John talks about. It's come into the world. People didn't just reject Jesus. There's something else they loved more than Jesus. That's always the way it works, by the way. The people loved the darkness rather than, so it's a comparative thing, rather than the light. Well, why would anybody do that? Well, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light. Why wouldn't they? Well, their deeds would be exposed. Those are big verses, church. Those are huge verses. John means to say, 
that if you want to find the reason for the rejection of the light, the coming of Jesus into this world, you can't find the reason by examining the light. That's not where you look. There is no reason for rejecting the light based on any flaw or defect in Christ. No, if you want to find the reason Jesus Christ was rejected and still is rejected, you have to look in the opposite direction. You don't look to the light. You look at the heart of those to whom he came. And we, we need to pay attention to this. Jesus Christ... Jesus Christ reveals our true selves. That's exactly what John means by that last word in John 3.20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, yet his deeds should be, and, and there's the word, exposed. Exposed. That's the tell word. The light lays bare something about us. It lays bare something about us that isn't usually seen. The light reveals something about us that we can usually keep hidden. And here's what it is. We can be, I can be clean, proper, refined, polite, acceptable in this world's eyes. But when Jesus comes close and speaks and then isn't accepted on his lordship terms, suddenly he lays bare the self-deceit. The layers get peeled back. Something selfish, something proud, maybe even rebellious is suddenly exposed. In otherwise, very nice, loving, humanitarian, good people. Those people enjoy the acceptance of the surrounding culture more than they embrace the light. And when Jesus comes, that gets exposed. It wasn't exposed before. Everything looked fine. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes, and I don't receive him, and that erases all the other good things that I do. A lot of Christians don't understand that. You don't have to rob a bank. You just have to reject Jesus. You don't have to commit adultery. You just have to reject Jesus. That's why, over and over again, John calls the incarnation of Jesus Christ this, this arrival of the light. It's just the nature of Jesus Christ to reveal. He constantly does that revealing work. It's not because, it's not because he's narrow-minded or an ordinary critic. No. He can't help but reveal. That's what light does. You go into a dark room, you put on a flashlight, you can see things you couldn't see before. Don't blame the flashlight. It doesn't make those things. It just reveals them. That's what the coming of Jesus does. I see it frequently in my office, as does as do the other pastors. I'll speak and I'll say, I know you don't see anything wrong in what you're doing, and I know everybody's doing it. Everybody, even in the church, is doing it. But this is what Jesus says you have to do about this sin. 
And they'll say, no, I can't do that. And what just happened at that moment in my office, Jesus exposed something. That's what happened. Jesus exposed something. People who still come to church, who sing about how much they love Jesus, who close their eyes and raise their hands, turn away from Jesus when he exposes something in their heart. They say they love Jesus. They probably think they love Jesus. And Jesus says, you don't. You don't. You can't profess to love Jesus or believe in Jesus. Hear this sentence. You can't profess to love Jesus or believe in Jesus while at some point in your life you disagree with Jesus. Did everybody hear that? You can't profess to love Jesus or believe in Jesus when at some point in your life you disagree with Jesus. I'm frankly, I'm going to say something that will surprise you, maybe shock you. I'm not much impressed when people come out and say they believe in Jesus. Not anymore. And I'll usually always say, that's wonderful. Let me ask you the important question. Do you believe everything Jesus said? That's a different question. <laughs> I believe in Jesus can mean everything from, you know, he was just, he said to love one another. And wasn't it beautiful the way he would teach us to forgive our enemies? And he laid down his life for us. And boy, if the world was only more like Jesus, everything, that, a lot of people mean no more than that. Do you agree with Jesus, with everything he says, everything he says about you, everything he says about marriage, everything he says about his coming, everything he says about materialism? Do you, do you agree with him? So remember the second main point that we're considering here. It's anchored in that 10th verse. He was in the world. The world was made through him. The world didn't know him. And the ignorance that John mentions, this is the point, it's a guilty ignorance. It's not a morally neutral ignorance. This means dealing fruitfully with Jesus Christ, the light, it will always require, even in my walk with him, ongoingly as Christians, it always requires tremendous honesty, tremendous humility. Point number three. the right to become children of God. It's in 12 and 13. But to all who did, a lot didn't, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, become, there's the verb, children of God. And nobody else could do this. That's his point. Born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. It was, it was God. We should be so grateful that John continues with 12 and 13 because right at the end of verse 10 and 11, one might easily conclude, no one's ever going to come to the light. Look at this dark world. But there were some who came. There were some who received there were some who believed. There were some who went against the flow of the crowd. 
There were some who followed, always counterculturally. There were some who stepped out when Jesus called. They left the followers of Jesus, left all the non-followers behind. The followers of Jesus left all the non-followers behind. You can't be in both crowds. Imperfectly, to be sure, but they just, they followed. Falteringly, for sure, they followed. Unworthily, and knowing it, they just followed. What about them? What about, what about these, I love these words here. I think of them when I think of my life. What about these weak, feeble, faltering, imperfect followers who only know what to do in terms of putting one foot in front of the other, falling and getting up, and just keep following Jesus, whether anybody else does or not. What about them? What about weak followers like Don Corbin? Well, verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God. Don't you find that precious? He just gave it. We're meant to see John's emphasis. I'm sure, I'm sure the same Apostle John who recorded these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, I'm sure we're meant to see the strong emphasis on that same word. He gave the right to become children of God. Verse 12. And the way John keeps the spotlight on the freeness of this gift is the way he links the words that I pointed out earlier. Receive believed, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Receiving comes from believing. Rub rub your brain with that. John could have easily linked receiving with accomplishing. He could have linked receiving with performing. He could have linked receiving with Measuring up? Is anybody else thankful that he didn't do that? No. With John, it's always about believing. Believing on his name occurs 30 times in the fourth gospel, more than all the synoptics combined. That's John. Believing is trusting. Believing is loving. Believing is relying. Believing is resting on. Believing is continuing. You keep believing. You agree with Jesus. Years ago, when I wasn't old enough, maybe, to appreciate the gift... My dad gave me a, a set of volumes. I don't keep them here. I keep most of them at home. He gave me a set of volumes written by a great evangelical scholar of another generation, Wilbur Smith. What Smith did dates him, of course. He actually put together a series of volumes known as Pelibet's Select Notes 
on the international Sunday school lessons. And it was a very condescending, not condescending isn't the right word, it was a very humble thing for a great scholar to do these highly readable lessons for Sunday school teachers. That was back in the day. Remember, you used to get a quarterly and you'd have, it was a different era. So I was reading the Sunday school lesson from John's Gospel, written in March 1943. And I came across the place where Smith was doing his commentary on John 1.12. But to all he did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Here's the quote from Wilbur Smith. Children are such as partake of their father's nature. This is the infinite, profound mystery of the thing resulting from the coming of our Lord. He gave them the right to become children of God. He made those to whom he gave that right partakers, as it were. And do not be afraid of that word. It's Peter's word in his letter, partakers of the divine nature. Are you a child of God? Then already you are a partaker of his nature. I state it so because it's an amazing declaration. And sometimes the heart is tempted to be fearful and afraid in the presence of such revelations of Scripture. Because, because I love this, we are so conscious of being unlike God. Think again. And always think patiently of your own life as you follow Christ. And always continue in believing. See your life with the same patience as your loving Heavenly Father. Isn't that a good quote? Receiving comes from believing. And, and, and the way John reinforces this positive principle in verse 12 is by stating it negatively in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. And I like the way three negatives come before the positive. John could have listed 50 negatives. He labors to show the absolute exclusion of any human, temporal, earthly, genetic contribution to being made children of God. And even with that kind of emphasis, we still miss the truth, don't we? Oh, the joy of wrapping up a teaching like this by refolding into our minds the precious truth that being made a child of God never happened because of how good a week you just had. That's not what got you in. It never came on the basis of being born of Abraham. It never comes about by stringing together a necklace of moral improvements. No wonder 
No wonder John loves, he seems to love that repetition. Not by this, or by this, or by this, or by this, or by this either. Receiving is by believing. Persistent belief is the call. That's what gradually transforms the affections. That's what will build more courage into your life. And that's what's going to please God. Later on, the same apostle is going to say, Beloved, now we are children of God, but it doesn't appear yet what we're going to be. Same apostle. But, but when he comes, we're going to be like him. We're going to see him as he is. I pray you don't miss that. I pray you don't miss that. Did you notice? Not by this, not by that, not by that, not by that. You can't do this. You can't generate this. You can become a child of God, but it's through what Jesus has done for you when he died on the cross for your sins.